Before I joined the Coast Guard, I spent a year in Cheney, Washington. Anyone been to Cheney, little, little town outside of Spokane? Um, and there I attended Eastern Washington University for one year. It was 1993, just two years after the Washington Huskies had won the national championship. And as anyone in Cheney will tell you, the heart and soul of that championship defensive line was their very own Steve Entman. Uh, there's even a plaque as you drive into Cheney that says, the home of Steve Entman. Everybody loves a hometown hero, especially in a small town. It's fun to be part of something bigger than yourself, and it's encouraging to hear the name of your little town on uh, maybe local news or even national news as someone great from your place makes a highlight, you know, and, and it feels like vicariously you are part of this movement, this, this bigger thing. Uh, for example, uh, maybe most recently Jake Locker from the Ferndale area uh, being a star on the Huskies and then going pro. Was it Nancy walks with some folks and even has a shirt that says, I walk with Jake's grandma, you know, this kind of idea. As long as the local standout, the, the, the golden boy, um, is in the media for the right reasons and not in the media for the wrong reasons, they achieve celebrity status from their hometown. It's an added bonus, of course, when the hometown hero comes back and gives back by maybe creating a new ball field or investing in a hospital or visiting uh, sick children or whatever it is. But I guarantee you, the minute the hometown hero starts talking politics or goes against the uh, collective know-how of the community, they go very quickly from the hometown golden boy to the black sheep of the community. This phenomena, hometown hero turned pariah, was part of Jesus' story as well. In Luke's gospel, we learn that Jesus had been teaching in the Jewish synagogues. He was doing amazing works of healing and deliverance. He was gaining a reputation as a formidable teacher, as a healer, and early in his career, people didn't quite know yet, so they're wondering, could this be a prophet or even more? Word about Jesus spread around the countryside, and I imagine the people of Nazareth, his tiny hometown, were very proud of their local boy. Maybe they even had a plaque that said, Home of Jesus. On Sabbath day, Jesus returned to his hometown to preach in his local synagogue, and the official attendant, the worship leader or the pastor, whoever, uh, handed him the scroll, and it was the scroll of Isaiah. So Jesus gets up to the pulpit, unrolls it to the place he wants to read, and this is what he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. The hometown hero had, it seems, just hit a home run. He read one of the Roman-occupied Israel's favorite texts of that day, and then Jesus adds for impact as everyone's looking at him, Today, in your hearing, the Scripture's been fulfilled. That's the equivalent of a first-century mic drop, y'all. He just, he just nailed it. He sits down. That's the pretext for today's context, so let's read the text, if you will. Let's stand, please, uh, as I read Luke chapter 4, verses 22 through 44. So, he's just dropped the mic, okay? And, uh, and all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips, and they were saying, is this not Joseph's boy? And he said to them, no doubt, 
you'll quote to me this proverb. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you, in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the, so- when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only Zarepta in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was healed except Naaman the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and they drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of a hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went on his way. And he came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were amazed at his teaching, for his message was with authority. In the synagogue, there was a man who was possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Let us alone! What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet, come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst of the people, he came out of him without doing any harm. And amazement came over, came over them all, and they began talking to one another, saying, What is this message? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the report about him was spreading into every locality in the surrounding district. Then he got up and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked him to help her. And standing over her, he rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she got up and waited on them. While the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and laying his hands on each one of them, he was healing them. Demons were also coming out of, the, out of many, shouting, You're the Son of God! But rebuking them, he would not allow them to speak because they knew him to be the Christ. When the day came, Jesus left and went to a secluded place, and the crowds were searching for him and came to him and tried to keep him from going away from them. But he said to them, I must preach the gospel, or I must ke- preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. So he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Lord, thank you for this word. A word not only of the things that you said, but the things that you did. Would you reveal what they mean for us and help us to have confidence in you as the healer, as the redeemer, as the one who sets captives free. May there be a release of captivity today in our hearts, Lord Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Let's be honest, that's a large chunk of Scripture, so I'm going to put you at ease as you're looking at your watches. I'm not going to preach every single verse in this, um, 
partly because healings and demon possession and things like that, those happen all throughout Luke's gospel. So we're going to get to dig into those things as we walk through Luke's gospel together over the next few months. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to make four observations on the text. Some of the observations will be flyovers, some of them will be a little bit deeper, okay? The first observation is this. Jesus embodies the sermon he preached in the synagogue. He proclaimed that the promises of God through Isaiah have been fulfilled in their hearing. And then he encounters a man with spiritual oppression and Jesus casts out the demon. Notice that the demon, singular, in verse 34 says, Leave us alone. What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Who is this us? In this scene, the demon who is tormenting the man is speaking on behalf of all of evil, of all evil spirits everywhere. He recognizes that, that with Jesus, the kingdom of God is breaking in. He recognizes that he's in trouble. When he says, have you come here to destroy us? The answer is actually yes. Actually, Jesus has. He's come to break the hold of evil, to set captives free, to release prisoners to sin and death and oppression. Amen? That's great news. Jesus then has authority over the spiritual realm. That's one of the things, one of the observations that we see here. Then Jesus goes to Simon's house, who would later be his disciple. That, his name would change to Peter, right? Anyway, that's later on. Uh, Simon's mother-in-law is suffering from a high fever. The Greek is pureto megalo, pure, pure, P-U-R. That means hot or fire. It means fire. And then mega is, well, mega, you know, mega, lots, big, large. So basically she's having a mega fever. If my grandma, Betty Lou, were still alive and she put the back of her hand on this woman's forehead, she said, sugar, you're burning up. That's what she would say to me. I'm not kidding. (laughs) So that's what's happening here. This, This woman is burning up with this fever and Jesus did what he did with the demon. He rebukes the fever. Like who rebukes the fever? Cold, come out of you. Um, with the word, Jesus casts out the fever. And like the demon, the fever leaves the woman. Jesus has authority over the physical realm, over bodies. That's pretty awesome. And then, as the sun set on the Sabbath, the whole city of Capernaum brought the sick with various diseases. He lays his hands on them and heals them. Demons were coming out of people. The kingdom of God was breaking in. So back to that first observation. Jesus doesn't just declare the fulfillment of the scriptures. He is the fulfillment of the scriptures. Jesus performs what the scriptures say. That's why, side note, leaving my notes for a minute. That's why Christianity isn't a philosophy and it isn't just a religion. You cannot have Christianity without Jesus. That's why we talk about him all the time. That's why we sing about him all the time. That's why we pray to him all the time. Because without Jesus, none of this stuff matters. He's the one who fulfills it all. He's the one that matters. Jesus had done things like this before he preached in Nazareth. Jesus did things like this after he preached in Nazareth, Nazareth and went to Capernaum. And yet six days, uh, or the text says, that the people of Nazareth tried to push 
their hometown hero over a cliff. <laughs> what did he do? Actually, this is mob justice. Somehow Jesus made these people so angry that they tried to push him off a hill. The protocol, and we have writings about this, what you're supposed to do if there was blasphemy or if there was, um, uh, if someone was a traitor to the nation or to the ideal of the nation. First of all, they would push him over the hill, and if that didn't do the job, they would cast heavy stones on him. It's pretty gruesome. They were pretty angry, is my point. What did Jesus do to receive this kind of hatred? We'll explore uh, that question in the second observation. And the, the second observation is this, that Jesus may not be the kind of Savior you want him to be. He may not be the kind of Savior you want him to be. In the first observation, we kind of skimmed over the passage like one of Aaron Nelson's drone videos. Have you seen those on He's getting his license to drive these, these drones with his camera. It's pretty cool. Uh, it was a flyover, the first observation. The second observation, we are going to sit down with the text and do an in-depth interview. In fact, for starters, we're going to go behind the text for a minute. So you know, during the first century AD, Israel was occupied by the Roman Empire. The Romans used Israel uh, on its west coast as a seaport to do their trading, and they used their major towns and cities as overland routes for trade. And that means that for centuries before Jesus was born in the flesh, uh, people from all kinds of different cultures and nations and, and, and tongues were coming there to do business and to come through. It was cosmopolitan. In fact, it's what people call Hellenized. Helen is the Greek word for Greek. <laughs> Okay, so Hellenization is Greekification. Okay, just put that in your head. Uh, this, this area was Greekified. And what that means is that the cities and towns in Israel may have kept their common tongue, probably some form of Aramaic, and in worship they might have had Hebrew prayers and songs and some writings, but they also knew Greek. They did their daily business in Greek. They learned Greek customs. The Bible was translated into Greek. There were Greek and Roman theaters and gymnasiums. And in many towns there were non-Jewish residents who practiced pagan religions, even in Israel. Nazareth was not one of those towns. Nazareth isn't even mentioned in the Old Testament. It isn't even on archaeological maps, except for very ancient peoples, until the second century BC. Evidence suggests that Nazareth was settled at first by a priestly class of Jewish men. And we know it remained all Jewish until the fourth century AD. Nazareth was located in the greater region of Galilee. And check this out. Centuries before Jesus, Isaiah the prophet was writing, and he would refer to Galilee, even back then, as Galilee of the Gentiles. So Galilee was already this place that had mixed religion, mixed language, paganism going on, in, interspersed amongst Judaism. And there was Nazareth in the middle of Galilee of the Gentiles as kind of an island of conservatism and Jewish nationalism. That's Nazareth, small town, conservative. Scholar Kenneth Bailey writes, Colonial enclaves, be they Greek, Roman, British, American, or Jewish, have a strong tendency in any age to be politically, culturally, and religiously self-conscious and intensely nationalistic. Nazareth, it appears, was such a town. In such a cultural world, how would Isaiah 61 have been understood? That's what Jesus quotes in his sermon 
you know, the Spirit is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor, right? Uh, Isaiah 61 would have been understood as good news to the Jewish people who follow the laws, but terrible news for Gentile people. They were the pagan oppressors whom God would punish severely. Okay, now here's the payoff why you just had to sit through listening to all that stuff about Nazareth. (laughs) When Jesus quotes Isaiah 61 and says he's here to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, he does something suspicious. He doesn't finish the sentence. If you were to look up Isaiah 61, the sentence goes like this, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. You see, the hope from a nationalistic point of view is that God would deliver Israel and judge the Gentiles. Now, why did the hometown hero leave this out of his sermon? If the crowds thought it was an oversight or maybe a mistake, Jesus would make sure that they knew it wasn't an accident. He says, no doubt you'll quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. That's an ancient proverb. Uh, We know it dates back to at least Euripides in the 5th century BC. Then he tacks on the statement, whatever we heard was done in Capernaum, do here in our hometown as well. Let me clear up the idea for you. Jesus knows that in the depths of their hearts, they want their hometown golden boy to do amazing deeds for them. They want to claim him as their own, And they see him as a product of their discipleship, of their upbringing. They see him as a product of their conservative, nationalistic program. In Jesus, they see their own success. We raised this kid. He's our boy. But Jesus is too graceful, too loving, too truthful to allow this delusion to endure. He's going to test the state of their hearts, and he's going to find their hearts wanting. He does this by referencing two scriptures that would have been, I mean, like the stories these people grew up with. The first is a reference to 1 Kings 17, which Schoon read just a few minutes ago. In that story, Ahab, the king of Israel, is led, led his whole nation toward idolatry. He married Jezebel, a foreign, um, a foreign woman who was a worshiper of Baal. Ahab was kind of a weak dude. He didn't, what's the cliche, didn't wear the pants in the family. So Jezebel says, you know what, we're going to worship Baal in this land. And so she tried to have the priests of Yahweh killed. And she said, we are going to worship Baal. This is going to be Baal's nation now. And because of this, God sent Elijah the prophet to the palace to confront Ahab. He said, listen, you want to go after Baal? Go for it. Side note, Baal was supposed to be, Baal means master, by the way. You see, so, and he was believed to be in control of the reins, among other things, fertility and some other things, but the reign. So, okay, you want to worship Baal? Go for it. Um, Yahweh's going to close up the sky, so see if your God Baal can make it rain for you. We'll see who's really in charge around here. So that's, that's why a famine comes for three and a half years. So Elijah says this. Of course, Jezebel wants to kill him. God says, run, go to this valley. I'm going to feed you, ironically, with unclean birds, these ravens, which are not kosher. Uh, and then when the river drives up that, that he was being watered from, God sends him to this Gentile widow, and he is walking into the town. There she is with her stick. She's literally getting sticks to make a fire to cook 
the last bit of flour and oil she has for her son before they die. He comes up to this lady. Hey, will you give me a drink of water? I, yeah, I guess. I mean, what are you doing? I'm going to make this, this bread with the last bit. Make me a cake, will you? What? Like, I'm seriously like we're going to die here. Yeah, make me a cake too. I mean, it's pretty forward, right? He says, if you trust me, if you trust me, I represent Yahweh, the God of Israel, and he will make your flour so it never runs out and your oil until it never runs out until it rains again. Trust me. Now, here's the deal. In a pagan worldview, in the ancient Near East, it was believed that gods were territorial. So your God was in control of your land and didn't have actually any power on other land. Therefore, if Yahweh is the God of Israel and Yahweh's prophet was now in her land, she, her worldview would say that Yahweh should have no power to do anything in her land. So she's not only trusting a foreigner and a foreign God, going against her whole idea of what can actually happen, but she is trusting so desperate that this will happen. She's poor. Poor in possessions, poor in spirit, poor in spirituality because her God wasn't doing his job and providing for her either. So she takes this leap of faith. She does it, and behold, God provides. He was good news to the poor woman who showed faith, even the desperate kind of faith of a starving mother who wants to provide for her son. By the way, is there any stronger kind of faith than a desperate mother or a desperate person caring for someone they love? Jesus is saying then in this passage in Luke 4, of all the starving people because of the famine during the time of Ahab, God sent his prophet not to the Jews but to a Gentile, a pagan widow, and she is the exemplar of faith in God. His second example is similar. He references 2 Kings 5 and the story of Elisha the prophet and the Gentile general Naaman. Naaman was not only a Gentile, but he was the definition of the oppressor. He was a general of the army that kept crushing and invading Israel. In fact, Naaman's household slave was an Israelite girl that he stole on a raid. And Grace upon Grace, she's the one who recommended that he go see Elisha to get healed. I just love the story. Anyway, this warlord from another land who worshiped other gods comes to trust that Elisha's God can heal him. So impressed, so he dips in this river, he's cleaned, he's healed, so impressed is he that he digs up earth, because remember, you can only worship God on their own soil. So he's going back to Syria, so he takes the earth from Israel and brings it back to Syria so that he can then pray in his own palace, because, you know, his theology is maybe bad, but look at his devotion. It's amazing. And Jesus says, there are so many lepers in Israel during the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except for Naaman the Syrian. Can you see why the people of Nazareth, with nationalistic pride and pride in their own righteousness, might be angry at the hometown hero? Jesus may have been the Savior, but he was saving the wrong people. Doesn't he know he's supposed to be our hometown hero? After all, compared to all those towns and cities in Galilee with mixed up cultures and watered down religion, the people of Nazareth who were, were more righteous, they didn't have seeker-sensitive services in their synagogue. 
They were more faithful. They were more loyal to God than anyone that they could think of. The fact that Jesus might do his amazing deeds of the kingdom in other places was infuriating to them. Our second observation then is that when we want Jesus to be our guy and do our bidding, we will be angry because he won't do it. There are a lot of angry Christians out there Angry about losing the culture wars. Angry about court rulings. Angry about the music you might hear in some churches or not hear in some churches. Angry about the use of certain translations of the Bible. Did Jesus get angry? Absolutely. He got angry at injustice and he got angry at hatred. He got angry at the priests and scholars of the Bible who ought to have known better. But if we're going to be angry about anything, maybe we should narrow it to the things that Jesus actually got angry about. And the last I checked, though, reading the very words of Jesus, maybe we should be, A, filled with a sense of relief and joy that he would actually save me. Sorry to say it, that he would actually save you. Maybe I ought to spend a little more time on the log in my eye and the speck in my brother's and sister's eye. And maybe I ought to pray for my enemies rather than wishing God's wrath upon my enemies. I'll let him deal with that. I'm clear he's just. He will do what's right. It's not good for my heart to hate people. That's a long second observation. So the third observation is very quick and easy. It's related to the second in that after Jesus had done a bunch of healings and exorcisms in the city of Capernaum, those people wanted to keep Jesus. Jesus wanted to go preach the good news to other cities and towns, but the people of Capernaum wanted to bottle him up and keep him for themselves. They weren't so much angry with Jesus like the people from Nazareth were. In fact, they were thrilled that he did the things he was doing in their land. They knew that they weren't righteous like the conservatives in Nazareth, Nazareth, but as often happens, when you have a good thing, you want to keep it for yourself. It's like your favorite player. Um, I mean, how cool is it that we end up, sorry, I'm going to talk about football for a minute, but like how cool is it that we end up with like Russell Wilson in our town, you know, this low draft pick who becomes this amazing, not only amazing quarterback, but amazing leader and amazing man. He's doing all this stuff in children's hospital, just like a great guy. We love Russell Wilson. How would we feel if he went to a division rival? Started going to their dang children's hospital, trying to do, you know, it'd feel a little different, like we want our guy to stay on our team, to be on our side. There's two photos I want to show you. The first one is a, is a classic. No, not that one. There you go. It's the Jesus is my homeboy photo. Um, That phrase, Jesus is my homeboy, this picture has adorned t-shirts and trucker hats and bumper stickers and tattoos all over the Christian subculture. And it's just one of many, many examples of people making Jesus into their own image. In this case, of course, it's the image of the laid-back West Coast culture where we live, maybe even a little more California. Uh, Jesus obviously would probably smoke weed and ride a skateboard, a longboard, of course, and he'd be the epitome of the chill bra, right? Uh, This Jesus is cool, and he's always chill, and he's never asking too much. His salvation comes in the form of getting along with everybody. 
He's the incarnation of dude from, uh, you know, the big Lebowski rather than the incarnation of the living God. And we all do this, like in every culture, in every age in history, and the people of Capernaum were doing this with Jesus as well. He could read their hearts and minds. They wanted him to be their healer and the judge of everyone else. But Jesus didn't just come for one type of person. He came to save many. As many as would receive him, Jews and Gentiles, Israelites and Romans, Greeks and Syrians, Armenians and Americans. Sorry to tell you, Jesus isn't your homeboy, but he'll be your savior and he'll be your king if you come to him with penitence and humility. That's why I like the second photo. Jesus in a Last Supper scene with a group of guys that some people might be tempted to call thugs or hoods. But if we're listening to Jesus here, the criteria for salvation is not your past, it's not your clothes, it's not your dialect, it's not your cultural customs. It's your response to him. It's your humility before him. It's your desperate need for him. So our third observation is that you can't bottle up Jesus and make him your own special sauce. He loves you, but he also loves the world, and that means he loves people that are different than you. All right, thanks, Jess. Which brings me to the fourth observation. Straight from the text, the crowds were searching for him and came and tried to keep him from going away from them, but he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities too, for, it was, for, for I was sent for this purpose. The fourth observation is that Jesus came with the purpose to save, to proclaim the saving reality of the kingdom of God, and to provide an invitation to join him in that kingdom to anyone who would repent. That's key. Anyone who would repent. Uh, you can't separate those two things. You can't say Jesus is just for anyone. And you can't say, you know, you can't just like have the repentance. He's for everyone who repents, turns around, chooses him. I think it's great news that you can't bottle Jesus up. What good news that he can't be franchised and politicized and denominationalized and intellectualized or anti-intellectualized. You can't, you can't contain him as your own little thing. The good news is that Jesus isn't made in our image. We are made in his image. And if you've looked around, if you traveled around, you see that people are made in all kinds of shapes and sizes. And we're all made in his image. How wonderful it is then that Jesus, that Jesus can meet all the kinds of different people where they're at, every kind of person. How encouraging that he can reach the people in your life and in my life who, frankly, I've written off. You have some of those in your life? I pray for him, but there's some people I just can't even imagine coming to faith in Jesus. This text tells me otherwise, that Jesus was sent for that very purpose, and he can reach people. And then all I have to do is just think about myself and say, oh my gosh, there are people in my life who thought I was absolutely unreachable at certain stages of my life. Now I'm preaching this dang sermon about a God who can reach anybody. 
So be encouraged. He can reach the unreachable. How amazing that he was sent to save the people we think will never come to know him. And how hopeful that Jesus can soften the heart of the hardest criminal or the most corrupt politician or the most deluded fanatic. And if he can do all of that, he can save you too. In fact, that's exactly why he came. So, sorry, Jesus isn't your homeboy. But through his life and his death and his resurrection, he's more than proved he'll be your savior and your king. Would you pray with me? Bless you, Lord, for not being all talk, but for putting on flesh and accomplishing the things that you talk about. And thank you that you're not all action, but you take the time to relate, to teach, to model, to gather followers. Thank you that this thing that we call faith in you isn't just, re- isn't just reciprocal, it isn't, it isn't transactional, it was relational. The God of the impossible. And I pray that we would have faith to put before your feet right now the things we consider impossible that you say are not impossible. Maybe we think it's impossible to trust you. Holy Spirit, would you soften our hearts? Maybe maybe we think it's impossible to give up an addiction or a, a crutch that we're leaning on so hard. Holy Spirit, would you give us Uh, an imagination, a changed heart for a different way of living in Christ. Maybe we think it's impossible for someone we love or work with or know to ever come to believe in you. There's just too many obstacles. Would you release mustard seed faith in our hearts to pray? And would you surprise us with glorious good news as people come to know how deeply loved they are by you. How, when they're confronted with their sinfulness, Lord, they also find salvation. Transform our world, Lord. We're desperate for you. Amen.